Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Hello, Tim. Shalom, Charlie. Shalom. This is a sleepy Tim. I am a little sleepy. Yes. But you, you discerned that, huh? Yeah. Well, it's a little later. Well, it's not a little later. No, it's about normal. About normal. But uh, we've, we've had long days, long days. And so what are, you were selling some books today. Yeah. So this last weekend, I was at a marriage conference. I was speaking at a marriage conference in Clarinda, Iowa. We had a really good time. Uh, chatting through Song of Songs, had some really positive feedback and I was encouraged. And uh, I think the Lord really used his word in the lives of a few couples. So that was really good. And then today there's a conference at Soteria of Des Moines, um, the Great Exchange. And so I was out there visiting with some pastors and took a few books out. So I am fresh back from that. And I don't know, it was a few hours ago. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's, uh, I say this sometimes, I don't know if I've ever said this on air, which I will say this, I'm about to talk about Blue Cow, which is not a sponsor, but maybe one day will be a sponsor. And if you're wondering who Blue Cow is, Blue Cow Moving and Storage, that's the greatest moving and storage company in the Des Moines metro. Give us a call. Anyway, which is where you work. Is, oh, yeah. I, I, and also, I work there. Anyway. <laughs> um, but something I say often off air now is that the blue cow waits for no man. And uh, yeah. Is that a tagline? No. <laughs> it sounds like a Charlie. It's, it's a Charlie <laughs> tagline. Our actual tagline is relax. It's a blue cow move. But I just say all the time, the blue cow waits for no man. You know, it's like you're always... <laughs> Always got more to do there. Right. But um, it is, if, if we could call it our off season, this is our off season. So, so less moves happening in October through March than in the other months of the year. Gotcha. So, but today was a surprisingly busy day. Hmm. It's, it's funny because, so last weekend we had a lot of rain and clouds and cold. Yeah. And anecdotally, any time that we have precipitation, Guess what people don't want to plan when it's raining or snowing? Interesting, yeah. When they move. Hmm. It just like shuts it down. And la the end of last week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so slow. And then what was today? Sunny. Beautiful, sunny, and people are like, oh my, I need to move. And we had a lot of phone calls today. And I think it's, you know, the pendulum swings the other way because nobody called on the weekend. So, you know. You got hammered today. Four, four to six o'clock tonight was quite busy. People get off of work and they're like, let's call that big old blue cow. There we go. So anyway, so yeah, things are good. Things are, I got, a, I get a lot of reading done these last couple of days. So anyway, so here's what's in this episode and let me click to the right tab so I can see that we have one announcement, which is we're going to rebrand you're going to rebrand, right? <laughs> it was a cow pun. Anyway, so uh, the Andy's quote of the week, we're going to start calling that Andy's weekly wisdom. There we go. As if it was coming from Andy as a wise quote that he would provide. But since in his absence, 
Uh, since he is absent, in his absence, we will share his wisdom for him. There so we go. It's his entry to our books and business. Uh-huh. And so we're going to have Andy's weekly wisdom. And then we're going to quickly reply to an email that came in a while ago from Randy Vodder out in Colorado. And then we're going to get to our books and business and main topics of the episode where for books and business, we're just going to talk about things we've started reading or planning to read in the coming days here. And then we're going to talk about burnt offerings. Tim Thinkling Little wrote an article for Logos recently about, I really like the title, Favor by Fire. My wife came up with it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so we're going to talk about Favor by Fire by Tim Little, about burnt offerings. And we're going to close the podcast with a final meditation from Hebrews 1. I don't know, you know, I kind of like rocking through that script yeah. at the beginning. It kind of helps kind of organize things. Yeah, how about that? It only took us like 160 <laughs> of these to figure that out. All right, so Andy's Weekly Wisdom. What do we got? This is, again, from A.G. Certeange. Okay, I, I will say, this is com- n- complete nonsense. I was on X, formerly Twitter. Uh, actually, it was today, and I saw a thread. It was a poll. And it had four names at C.S. Lewis, Spurgeon, G.K. Chesterton, and uh, what was the other one? And Martin Luther said, which of these four is the most quotable? And I replied to that and I said, A.G. Certeange. There's so many quotes from this. It's unbelievable. Um, but I, I, I can't, yeah. Anyway, maybe we'll talk about that poll someday. So here's the quote. This is in the same chapter we've been kind of slowly working through. So the organization of life. And he has had a handful of uh, subheadings here. And so I'll read through those again, kind of get the context. So you have the organization of life. He talks about simplifying his life. You know, when one thinks of a man of genius, you don't think of him dining out. We had that quote earlier. We talked about solitude. So having moments of silence and solitude, that's part number two. Part three was cooperation with one's fellows. And we quoted that on a previous week where to have the association with your friends, to discuss good books, it's almost like a a Thinklings podcast. Last week in that same section, we talked about friendship being an obstetric art. So it births things. And so it takes two people to really have something. And that's where you need, you need good friends mm-hmm. to really draw out from you what you're worth. And so the very next section is called the cultivation of necessary contacts. So it's not necessarily your friends, but it's the other appointments and things in life. People you're going to you know see and talk to that maybe you don't always want to talk to. And uh, so th- there's a lot of fun things in here. He's like, well, what do you do when you have to spend time with an, like a fool? It's like, well, you can even learn things from the fool. There's a good quote about that, but I didn't pick that one. Uh, What he's talking about at the very end of this, so you're having these relationships that aren't necessarily directly influencing your intellectual life. And he he says this throughout the book, where you kind of want to live your whole life as an intellectual. You don't like take days off. You don't take appointments off. So like, even when you're, doing some nonsense with, you know, something you don't want to be at has nothing to do with your books, has nothing to do with your writing, whatever. You need to still act in that moment. You need to be careful how you 
you know, drain yourself, how you use yourself in those moments. And he kind of talks about how you speak when you're in a place that's not intellectual. Like you're spending time with a bunch of fools. Do you want to like, you know, get into this really deep conversation? You probably won't get into a really deep conversation with a bunch of fools. It's like, you need to be careful about how you speak and present yourself all the time. This is kind of like a side note to a side note, but it's a really good quote. In the context of how you speak amongst contexts that aren't purely intellectual, he talks about using your silence. And so here's the quote. This is, you, you just spent like five minutes setting this up. I know. Well, because if you just, if you just rip it out of context, it, it just, it work. loses, it loses some mm-hmm. of the like. Well, just the whole idea about being around people who are really, or purely, would you say purely intellectual? And so that, that's a conversation in and of itself. Uh, we can uh, walk away from that, at least for right now. Yeah. But, it's but actually really funny. Maybe you know, even people who are actually in, walking in a pursuit of truth, like real truth. Yeah. Because the fool's not. Yeah. And, uh, in case you're wondering if, if you're, if you're struggling with that part of life, like you're like spending all your time with people that, you know, don't really care about the life of the mind, you know, whose responsibility Sir Tayange says that is the wife. And this is not my quote, page 60, the wife of an intellectual should see to that. She should not open her house at random. Her tact should be a sort of seed more than the society of the great world. She should esteem that of noble spirits. So the wife should help the husband not spend time with fools. So like who you invite over for dinner matters, ladies. Okay. Anyway, so (laughs) that's like another can of worms. Anyway, read the actual quote that you had prepared. Yes. Uh, Anyway, so here's, I'm just going to read the sentence. Uh And if we want to broaden out to the paragraph, we can. Silence is the hidden content of the words that count. Silence is the hidden content of the words that count. So it's a really artistic and beautiful way to say, like, short is sweet. If you have to take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to tell me the thing, there's probably a lot of nonsense in there. If you can just say it so short and then be quiet, that silence is the content of what matters, of the words that count. Silence is the content of the words that count? Silence is the hidden content of the words that count. So saying it and letting it sit. And, and specifically, you know, he's not talking about a presentation in front of intellectuals, and he's not talking about writing a paper. He's talking about the way you interact with people who don't necessarily add to your intellectual pursuits. And in those moments, he says, you know, why not be brief? And your silence is going to do more there. Uh, your, your silence is the content in those moments. It's okay. not your... So is he actually like, saying to just say something brief? Is that what he's arguing for in the paragraph? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, Besides, that is the way to give weight to one's words. So it's kind of like an addendum to a side thought about how you interact with people Mm. at like random parties you don't want to be at. Well, I mean, it's like you're in a situation and somebody has a question and, and then the way, the way that the question is worded or even the question itself is like a whole conversation that you're going to need like two or three hours to work through. 
well, what do you do? You can't begin that kind of a conversation to actually address it. So it's almost like that's when you throw out a proverb or an enigma, according to like Proverbs 1, 6, 1, 5, and 6, where it's just to get them thinking maybe in the right direction or something. I could see that. That's an interesting selection. Yeah, and I don't, think he, I don't think he comes out and actually says what you just said. Yeah. But that's where it's like, if you're spending time with fools and you throw out this enigmatic statement, mm-hmm. only the ones that really want it are going right. to follow up on it. Yeah, and I wouldn't even necessarily say that they're fools, but even maybe they're just somebody who is a little more naive and they don't even, they just don't know. So they walk up and they have some kind of a question for you. And you're like, that's a huge conversation. And mm-hmm. you maybe just give them a little sentence that kind of sends them in a specific direction if they really want to go for it. And, you know, since since we just were talking about fools all the time, we'll just cap it by reading the statement about fools. And yet even fools have their place in serving us and completing our experience. Page 60. Anyway, so they're... Completing just, our experience? Yeah, like you... It's like fine. You, you have to live in reality and fools are a part of reality uh-huh. in that sense. But he's, he, I think he's trying to be kind and saying like, you don't view yourself as an intellectual and then make a list of all the stupid people and like, well, I'm not going to spend time with any of the stupid people. Oh, okay. And he's like, no, like there are tons of people out there and you can benefit from every one of them. You shouldn't seek them out and maybe your wife should help you there. Like, <laughs> but, um, Anyway, at the very end of all of that, silence. I don't know that whole wife thing. That's there's something going on there. Anyway, I think he's. I think he's just trying to quippily say. Quip, is quippily a word? <laughs> I think he's trying to pithy and tactfully say. You know, the wife should help their husband. You know, and, and again, again, this is written in a very different cultural context. Right. Obviously, it's not. Um, it's not woke in any sense, and it's not you know, PC to our modern right, culture. Right, right. But he's saying, okay, here's your husband who's trying to devote two hours a day to the life of his mind. If you invite an absolute income poop over for dinner, guess what you just did? Right. Th- that day's gone. And essentially, it sounds like there's some kind of personal story connected to that <laughs> kind of a statement, I guess is what I'm trying to refer to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Anyway, so that's, Andy's Weekly Wisdom, silence, is the hidden content of the words that count. Any other thoughts there? No. (laughs) Man, talk about being brief. And that took, you know, 10 minutes. All right, on to, we'll be really brief with this next one. Listener interaction, and just to remind you, Tim, did you know that the Thinklings have an email? I do. Yeah, and that is thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. And we would love for you, if you're listening to this, to send us an email. And in that email, you can just say, hey, uh, you know, Charlie's clearly my favorite of the three and the other two are tied for second. You, you could say that. <laughs> or you could ask a, ask a question that we could ask on air. You could send us something that you thought was interesting and maybe we will read it and discuss it, which is what this one is. So we had Randy Vodder who is out in Colorado and he sent in a Lewis article. It's, uh, I don't have the name of it pulled up right in front of me and we'll, we'll talk about it fully in a future episode, but it's 
kind of like how to live your life by C.S. Lewis type of an idea and pulled some quotes from Lewis's writing, kind of comes up with these ideas. And uh, Randy's like, hey, what do you think about this? And so uh, I spent some time thinking through that article, reading it, jotting down some thoughts. So we're going to talk about that on a future episode. And um, if in preparation for that, you would like to find and read this article as well. Let's see, can I find it? It's medium.com. C.S. Lewis, Five Cardinal Rules on Living a Good Life. And you can create a free account and you can read that article. Um, And so medium.com, C.S. Lewis, Five Cardinal Rules on Living a Good Life. And we'll discuss that in a future episode. So thank you for the suggestion, Randy. And I have so many tabs open. (laughs) I can't find the tab I need. There we go. Hey, you know what, Tim? It's what? time for that thing we always do. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. You want to go first? Or you want me to go first? So I have been busy not reading uh, the books I'm. I need to read. I have to read by this. Well, the one I have to read by in one week. Five views on Christ in the Old Testament. It's a five views book. And um, I'm already familiar with Jason DeRucci's view because I heard him talk about it at ETS last year, and I did not like what he had to say. So I'm not sure where I'm going to land on this issue, but I'm part of a book reading group, and I meet with them next Monday, so I have to have it done. So that's one I'm going to be reading. And that's all I've got for Books and Business this week. I've been busy working on other stuff. Sure. Jason Derushi, he's at Midwestern, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to read one of his books for a class a while back. He and Nacelli did like a companion series. Nacelli was How to Preach the New Testament, and he did How to Preach the Old Testament. And uh, he's, he's a Hebrew scholar, right? He is, yeah. yeah. So like he presents the redemptive historical Christocentric approach, uh, which I think would be pretty popular in... Uh, maybe our circles, but it's definitely popular in reformed circles. But Would that be somewhat similar? It's it's people use different terms to sometimes refer to similar ideas. So, like, would that be like a Brian Chapel type of a? I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure where uh, Chapel lands. But in his article, um, in his article, he basically exegetes two passages. Passages, I believe, incorrectly and reads Christ into them incorrectly. So (laughs) it was like, well, you're not doing a whole lot. But one of them is actually Genesis 22 (gasps) with Abraham and Isaac. Ding, 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 ding. We'll come back to that in a few moments, listener. And then the second one is Lady Wisdom. In Proverbs. In Proverbs. You know what's so striking about that? He he did... In his Old Testament book, yeah, he did like a, a mock word study uh-huh. on Hevel in Ecclesiastes, yeah. Yeah. and he's the only person that has ever, I in my sense, knocked it out mm-hmm. of the park. Yeah, he probably did. I mean, he did a great job. Okay, so exegesis, he works through Proverbs eight, uh, at least at the ETS article. So I, uh, ETS, he did, and I'm pretty sure he just does the same thing here, and he exegetes it correctly. Uh, in which I was shocked that he still took a Christocentric approach to Lady Wisdom. Um, that he says that Lady Wisdom is Jesus, 
okay? Which I am basically saying, no, Lady Wisdom's not Jesus. Lady Wisdom is the divine order of creation. It's a huge stretch. And, and so there's one verse that people who say that Lady Wisdom is Jesus, they basically are basing it on a mistranslation and interpretation of Proverbs 8.30. Um, and he actually exegetes it right. And so at ETS, I ask him, so I, I, I applauded him because he actually exegeted this verse correctly. Um, let me see here. Then I was in, in Proverbs 8.30, Lady Wisdom is speaking. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So the I is Lady Wisdom, or Jesus, was beside him, that'd be God. And then the key phrase is, as a master craftsman. So it seems like, and some have argued, Lady Wisdom is the creator of creation. And this he, is the only Old Testament text where presumably Lady Wisdom creates. And he correctly exegetes through this and says, no, it's not Lady Wisdom that's doing the creating. It's, the it's God the Father. Yeah, God the Father is the master craftsman. Lady Wisdom is just present there because Lady Wisdom is the blueprint, the order of creation. So I asked him at ETS, you exegeted this correctly, but where else in the Bible uh, does it say that Lady Wisdom is divine or is creating? And he kind of had this look on his face and he said something and I'm like, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> he didn't so answer the question. He didn't answer the question, but it's at ETS. It's fine. And uh, it'd be interesting to follow up with him. I haven't had a chance, Yeah, but exegetically this is his only text and he exegetes it correctly but still came to the wrong conclusion i would contend that jesus yeah, that's is wild lady was oh it was it was interesting so anyway that's my books and business and that's about as spicy as tim's gonna get right there <sighs> i'm tired already it's good beautiful <laughs> all right your turn yeah so kind of in i mean a lot of odds and ends I will, I'll give another shout out to Andy. He introduced me to Bookly and that has been really helpful to like have on an app, all of the books you are reading, where you're at in that book to know exactly where you left off. And then just a simple, like, Hey, just read 10 minutes, you know? And so, um, obviously been reading through intellectual life and, uh, getting pretty close through that one. And then, uh, the, I think I've mentioned this before but I'll just bring it up again because I, I finally got into some meat of it. And this is For the Children's Sake, Foundations of Education for Home and School. And uh, it's by Susan McCauley. And uh, I heard about this through one of my pastors and just knew it intersected a lot of what we discuss in Discipleship of Children. And so put a, logged it away in the back of my mind okay, that's a book we need to assign for this, and then that'll give me an excuse to analyze it as well. And so it talks about Charlotte Mason and her education philosophies, and I got into the, start reading this, and what I really liked was in the introduction, it captured me on the, this isn't even the introduction, this is the foreword written by Susan McCulley's daughter. And she opens the foreword with the question, why is this book so compelling? Like, why is it still a favorite for people? And she throws this quote out in the middle of that first paragraph, and she had me locked in. Here's the quote. 
they began to appreciate Charlotte Mason's focus not so much on the acquisition of skills and facts. Like, is that what education is? Just skills and facts? No. But upon cultivating the life of the mind. The intellectual life. Yeah. And, uh, so, ooh, the life of the mind. And this is, by the way, this is a woman in the 1800s who is going to go on to be a teacher and a great teacher, is appointed the dean of a college of education, and she's got, you know, you know great ideas on um, philosophy of, edu of education for children. And she goes on to kind of accentuate the imagination mm -hmm. and reading and, and just so many great things. Um, and uh, so that caught me on the, in the foreword. But then I got to the end of the uh, acknowledgments. And here's now Susan McCulley saying, a very special thank you to my parents, Francis and Edith Schaefer. And that's where the light bulb goes on. And you look at the cover again, Susan Schaefer McCulley. This is Francis Schaefer's daughter, mm -hmm. uh, which definitely colors it in a little bit. Like she probably grew up in a, Decently intellectual and theological home. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, you know, for better or for worse, instantly gave me like, uh, there's a little bit more credibility to that now. Yeah. Uh, like this is Francis Shaver's daughter. Um, and so just before we even got to chapter one, some, some great intrigue there. And so, and I did read through chapter one. I'll save thoughts on that for when we address it in an episode fully, but good things from, for the children's sake. But with that, there is another thing I've read that I read in, in its entirety, and that was Favor by Fire by Tim Little, <laughs> an article about burnt offerings. And so, uh, Tim, if you would allow me to do this, I have outlined it as I read it. Like, here's the main points, and then, um, and then you can just kind of, yeah. after I do that, jump in and tell us. Where did this come from? Yeah, that sounds give great. Give us the, the big ideas. Give us some more meat there. I love it. So as I read through this, and you can find this on, um, if you just search Logos, Favor by Fire, Tim Little on Google. Yeah, I just did a Google search, Favor by Fire, yep. Tim Little, and it popped right up. And not, not hard to find. And uh, here I would say is what I would call the thesis of the article. This is in the opening words. Understanding the history, and this is a quote, understanding the history, practice, and significance of the burnt offering will also help New Testament believers understand the sacrifice of Abraham and apply his example to their own Christian walk. And so we're going to understand burnt offering, and that's going to help us uh, live out New Testament uh, virtue. Mm -hmm. And so there are one, two, three, four five main points in the article and they all have the kind of the tag of of the burn offering okay so you have number one the history of the burn offering like where did this come from two the practice of the burn offering like what are they actually doing mm -hmm. three you have the significance of the burnt offering so what does this mean what are the uh, worshipers seeking with the burnt offering Four, there's the belief of the burnt offering. And I'll just put in quotes there, this was the most important part of it. And so we'll, I'm sure, come back to that. And then number five, we have the New Testament burnt offering principle. 
where we uh, draw application from what burnt offerings are, do we see this same idea in the New Testament? And your conclusion was, yes, we mm-hmm. do. Yes. So with, with that, set the table for you. Tell us about burnt offerings. Well, uh, so I was contacted by Mark Ward, and he asked me if I would like to write an article on burnt offerings. And I had a little bit of mixed emotions about that because, I mean, who cares about burnt offerings? <laughs> As New Testament believers, nobody really gives a rip uh, about burnt offerings. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I need to study this out. This was not something that I knew a lot about. So I ordered a couple of interlibrary loans. And I jumped online and got some articles, and then I began studying burnt offerings. And what I learned is that it's one of the oldest offerings. Uh, We see offering at the very beginning of the creation account. With Cain and Abel, they're already offering, uh, making offerings, not burnt offerings. Theirs are not burnt offerings. They're probably more along the lines of a peace offering. Uh, But an offering nonetheless, the first burnt offering we see is in Noah. Yeah. So he offers a burnt offering in Genesis 8 after he gets off of the boat. And so there's no instruction. There's no explanation. It's just all of a sudden they are offering burnt offerings like somebody has already told them how and that it's necessary and it's assumed. Uh, and that's the way that it's always been. We we get some of that in Leviticus because Leviticus doesn't actually explain very much why uh, they have to do burnt offerings because it seems like they already knew why. So. And as I read your article, mm-hmm. I was I was kind of intrigued by that thought. So I think it could be a very easy assumption. Well, they're just getting this from like some pagan culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't, and I tried to kind of think back through in my own instruction, you know, what was I taught in Bible college or seminary about burnt offering? And I don't think we ever no, we don't really care. addressed it. <laughs> but like, where did we get this idea from? And uh, my best thought was that the Lord probably instructed them in offering, and it's just not specifically recorded in Scripture. Correct. Yeah. That seems to be the situation. Yeah. So they're just doing it, and that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He doesn't need to give a great explanation or whatever, because everybody was offering burnt offerings, uh, whether it was to the Lord and in a properly ordered burnt offering, or if it was offered to Baal or whoever else. I mean, you have the competition between, you know, the Lord and Baal on uh, Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And I mean, everybody offered burnt offerings to their deities. Mm. Um, So it was a really common offering that was performed. And, and then what, what was it? This was something interesting for me too. Uh, the worshiper was heavily involved in the process of offering a burnt offering. Uh, it wasn't just a, Hey, throw money into an offering plate type of a thing, but you were, uh, you brought the animal. You were the one that slit the throat. You were the one that put your hand on the head, which according to, uh, you cross-reference that with like Leviticus 16, it seems like they would put their hand on the head and say a prayer at that time. Uh, So we don't know that for sure because it all just seems to be assumed. Everybody knew the whole practice and what you were to do and so on and so forth. Um, But in Leviticus 16, 21, it it says, uh, uh, let me look it up here quick. And while you look that up, you kind of mentioned that, you know, there's different purposes of the burnt offering and like, 
the types of offerings that the Israelites are performing. Mm-hmm. And um, just to highlight, like the, the burnt offerings are part of the daily sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. And so, like, uh, you know, we're very sanitized in our Western modern culture right? to the point where, you know, most of you listening to this have never killed an animal. You know? Right. And um, not to be gruesome, but I have. And, and not even the way I intended. Like when you go hunting and you don't kill them the way you wanted to kill them, uh, then sometimes you do have to end up, you know, dispatching in a very... Uh, real Early. intimate setting. And I'm I'm trying to think through the liturgy of daily placing your hand on that animal. Right. And then daily making that prayer mm-hmm. and then slitting that animal's throat. Right. And then the blood would be collected to then be transported over to the actual place. Yeah. I mean, it was an entire process. Uh, but in Leviticus 16, 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. So you're saying this prayer because this animal, this idea of the substitutionary atonement was was um, built right into this sacrificial system. So the worshiper would like place their hand on the head, say this prayer, slit the throat, they're collecting then the blood to take it over to the altar. And then the priestess then begins assisting with the process and, and taking the burnt, the uh, preparing the offering. And then they're like dismembering the thing. It's yeah. not like they just threw the whole thing whole up onto the, onto the altar. They're butchering they're it butchering in very specific it. ways. Yeah, in specific ways, dismembering it and then putting it up on the altar. Well, there's quite a bit of mention of like the fatty parts and you know, right. all the whatever. Right, so with the whole burnt offering, then everything goes up in smoke. Um, the priests would take the skin. Everything else went up in smoke, which is kind of interesting. The smoke or the skin would stink, like with the hair and stuff. Yeah. But then they would use it for writing. I mean, the goat skin. Vellum. Vellum. It'd be uh, there the for the priesthood. And then they could maybe sell it or whatever else too. But hmm. um, for the most part, it was all incinerated. But with the free will offering, the choice parts were offered to the Lord, and then they would eat the the lesser portions. So yeah, and so you you kind of mentioned there, you know, there's the substitutionary idea, mm-hmm. and I think this is kind of another area where there's probably some interaction revelation between the Lord and the people that we don't have recorded in scripture, which is sometimes uh, maybe troublesome, especially when we get into like gospel conversations. Cause it certainly seems like, you know, you could easily build a works righteousness into a sacrificial system. Right. I did the sacrifice. Yeah. I I'm earning my righteousness. Right. Um, but then you you highlighted a couple other ways that the burnt offering was utilized, not necessarily only right. that substitutionary idea, but then you know getting into number three and four together, where there's the belief element. Yes. So um, the the main reason why they would they would offer an uh, they would they would offer a burnt offering was to seek the favor of God, which is kind of what we seek to do. We want God's favor. We want God to bless us. And often we don't think through that God is the one that actually provides. He's the one that sustains. He's the one that gives. 
uh, blessing, but, but he, he is, especially in our scientific and modern age, we work and so therefore we get money or blessing or whatever, um, but God is the one that gives all good things. And the worshiper was seeking the favor of the Lord. Uh, so that's an important component of why one would even give the burnt offering was to seek the favor of the Lord. But if you're seeking the favor of the Lord, okay, why are you giving the, doing the burnt off offering for your own personal benefit? And it's not a, oh, I believe, but it's, oh God, I want you to give me this. So here's me giving this to you. It's like this works contract. Yeah. And so one book that I read addressed this specifically because within the pagan religious practices, that's what burnt offerings were. You have to give the deity the animal. Yeah. So then you get uh, the favor of the deity. Which is all over the place in... Uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Oh yeah, exactly. All over the place. It's everywhere. Yeah. But here's the thing is that there's actually a component where that is true. Mm -hmm. In Genesis 22, Abram does what God tells him to do. And at the end of the text, what does he get? Favor. Favor. <laughs> yeah. So there is a component where when you actually do what God says in offering the sacrifice, which we haven't quite talked about what that means, there is a component where God does favor you. And Abram is blessed immensely uh, because of what he did in Genesis 22. And that is an emphasis of the text. Yeah. And so uh, well then clearly we do have, and you did even cite some of these in your article, there are times where the Lord clearly draws a line between the actual practice of the sacrifice and the meaning behind it, where he, you know, points the finger at Israel for doing it on the outside, but not really believing. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so that idea of belief, it's, um, that's like the, was that the fourth point or something? Yeah. Of my article. Yeah. You, and, uh, Belief would be the foundation of it because when we think of a burnt offering, a lot of times we think, oh, they killed the animal and offered it up. But I have to understand what that animal was. That animal was a source of life. That animal was a source of wealth. So um, what would be a modern equipment e equivalent to like sacrificing an animal? Uh, you know, getting rid of your best car. Okay, yeah. Some kind of personal possession that you no longer have. Or, and, you know, that's not... I would say even just giving money to the church or to some kind of uh, uh, a work of the Lord kind of ministry or whatever. Because that money, then where does it... Where is it in, for you? No, it's gone. It's gone. Okay, so... And when you're offering something up to the Lord, which is this animal, you think of a cow and the workforce that a cow is, how much meat is on a cow to just burn it up and get nothing from it. Well, mm -hmm. what is that? What would you call that? Silly. It's silly. It's a waste. It's like, why would you do that? That, that just is, is dumb. Well, the and instantly entering into the mind of every person is, well, what if I give him like one of my small cows? Right. Or, or like the sick cow. The gimpy one. The gimpy cow. <laughs> the one that's about to die anyway. Yeah. That one's 30 years old. It's, it's not going to make it. Let's, hopefully it lives until we get to the priest's place, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we're just going to burn the thing up anyway. 
So who cares? But obviously God had regulations where he's like, that's not what I want. That's not what's pleasing to me because that's not real faith. And that's where the belief component comes in. If you're going to incinerate this animal, that's actually a source of your wealth. That's going to help build up your, um, um, affluence. Who's it's going to, that animal would be used to make more wealth and you're just going to burn it up. Well, you have to then believe that God is the one that's going to provide for you. Hmm. You have to believe that even though I totally throw this away and incinerate it, I know that God is, is good and he will provide for me nonetheless. And you see that in the example of Abram, specifically with Isaac, because God says, I want your son. Well, your son is more important to Abram than Abraham than anything. He has tons of animals and he would offer them all up. He doesn't care. You read through Genesis 15, Abraham does not care about money. He does not care about wealth. He has no son. Then God gives him this promised son. And then God says, I want you to give me back your son, your only one, Isaac. In other words, God asks Abraham, Abraham for everything. And the question is, will Abraham, Abraham believe? Will he obey God, even mm. though God's asked him to do something that won't work? Because God has promised Abraham also that through Isaac, his descendants will be named. And so Abraham, Abraham would be like, I don't know how God can work this out. This is impossible. <laughs> but I believe. Yeah. And I'm going to obey. And that's where he's an example to the modern church, where if God asks you to give him everything, what do you need to do? You believe and you obey. And then what will God do? Will he take care of you? Yes. He will provide for you, which is why, what does Abraham then name the place? God will provide. God will provide. God will see to it. God will take care of it. So God, I'm going to offer this cow up as an offering knowing and believing that you will provide for me. And then for the New Testament equivalent, how does that apply? Well, your neighbor doesn't have food. They don't have clothing. And in James chapter two, we'll be warm and filled. Oh, I'll pray for you. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's, that's not faith. That's not, God. I'm gonna give of my substance to help this individual and trust God to provide for me. You're not being Abraham. Okay, you're being the ancient Israelite who's offering God the half, the three, well, the cow that's about to die, or you're going through the motions of religion uh, just to be esteemed by others. You're like ancient Israel. And that's where sacrifice then applies to us, where we need to take the blessing and whatever it is that God has given us. And if God says, hey, I want you to use this for that, or I want you to uh, do this, then you say, okay. And guess what? I know that God will provide. So I believe and I trust the Lord to provide for me. So that was a really good uh, study and uh, a real practical uh, study for an Old Testament sacrificial system that nobody really cares about. Everybody highlights the substitutionary component, uh, not the sacrificial yeah. component. Uh, both are there. And I use the illustration of Abraham too, because God tells Abraham, I want your son. In other words, God asks for everything. Mm -hmm. And Abraham says, okay. But then God intervenes 
And then he provides a lamb in the thicket. And the lamb, or the ram, the ram cost Abraham nothing. Yeah. So there's a bit of irony there and some instruction concerning how burnt offerings work. So anyway, that was the article. I love it. And uh, so I was just, I was curious because I wanted to look up uh, that the Lord will provide phrase. Yeah. Uh, Yehovah or Adonai, Yaira. Would this be where people get the, like Jehovah Jireh? Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you've heard people in like the studies of the name of God, Jehovah Jireh, uh, that it's, it's not really a J, but it's Y. Mm-hmm. It's a, like a, a Y, yeah. Yira. And uh, it's the verb for see. Yeah. So the, the Lord sees it, sees what's happening. Um, you know, ESV puts a note there. Um, you know, obviously, the, you know, you can grab the sense of he sees and he meets the needs. So he's providing is where they're, you know, get that translation from. But if you've ever wondered, you know, where does that name come from? Yeah, it comes from there. It does. So and it literally means the Lord will see. Yeah. The Lord will see to it. It's like, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but guess what? I believe you. I'm going to trust you. And he will see to it. Awesome. Well, good article, Tim. I, you know, we sh- you should reach out to your buddy, Mark Ward. <laughs> and uh, we should get him on our podcast. We should get him to come over here and... That would be good. He would, he would do that. Yeah. I want to I hear him, like, lay a smackdown on King James onlyism Because I know he's talked about that before. That's his area of expertise, yes. for sure. So, anyway, let's have a final meditation in God's Word. And the passage that we will be looking at is Hebrews chapter 1. As tempting as it would be to go to Hebrews 11 and talk about the faith of Abraham, believing that he would raise his son Isaac from the dead. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 1. I think I've already mentioned there's just a couple of guys in my church we're studying through Hebrews. And uh, so just been studying and reading there. And uh, the, the main theme of Hebrews, it as an incredibly articulate uh, treatise on how Jesus is better than so many of the Old Testament worship systems. So including the sacrificial system, but so much more than that, how Jesus is such a superior uh, priest and mediator to God for us. And in that great treatise that is this epistle, he uses Old Testament quotation and allusion heavily. And so as we progress through the text, uh, not just this one, but through, you know, into chapter one and beyond, we're going to see a lot of quotations from the Old Testament that are messianic or uh, kingly. He's he's applying ideas to Christ very beautifully. And so, but what we're going to see in this opening text is is really that uh, Jesus is better uh, as a form of revelation to us. Jesus is better than the old system of communication, which was the prophets. It's how uh, the epistle of Hebrews opens. And it's almost without any introduction. And it almost opens up just like a story, you know, like a long, long time ago. That's, that's literally what Hebrews opens with. Uh, and many times, palu min, uh, meros, like many times, and palu... Uh, oh man, I gotta make that bigger. My eyes are so bad. Palut uh, tro, tropos, palutropos, many ways. So like the many ways, many times before 
long ago. Long ago in That's the galaxy. That's the opening. It's this Palumeros, Palutropos, uh, Tropos. Yeah, I said that right. Palehatheos. It's like God in many times, many times, long ago, spoke to the fathers in the prophets. Like that's the opening of the story here. Long, long time ago, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, and uh, depending on how you look at that, he could be talking about like last days in an eschatological sense. Like here's the king, um, the end of the times type of a discussion. But in these last days, he has spoken not through the prophets, but to us, he has spoken through his son. And what follows is seven descriptions of the son. So just this grand opening, long, long time ago, he used to speak through the prophets, and now it's not the prophets anymore. It's Jesus, the son, and who is the son? And so let's look, we're going to walk through those descriptions. And so description number one, whom he appointed the heir of all, the one who would inherit all things. That is who Jesus is. He's the heir of all things. And this is uh, likely a direct allusion or quotation of Psalm 2. I will make you, uh, I'd have to pull it up and to quote it perfectly, but Psalm 2 verse 8. Let's just do that which he's going to bring up Psalm 2 again in verse 5. But here's Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, Mm. and the ends of the earth your possession. And so a a very messianic, kingly psalm. And here he's saying, guess who is the one who inherits the earth and all the things? The Son. Mm -hmm. The revelation that God's given to you and I He's the one who will inherit all things. That's description number one. And it's almost an alluded fulfillment or symbolic application of Psalm 2 to Christ, which he's going to definitely do in verse 5, but he's kind of like just foreshadowing it now. So that's description one. Description two, through whom he also created the worlds. So here, unlike Lady Wisdom in Proverbs, Mm -hmm. here's a direct, direct mention of Christ creating. Mm -hmm. So who is the son? He's the heir of all things. He's the one who created the worlds. And it's not the typical word for worlds there. It's the like ages. It's not just the physical, but it's like all of it, like the creation of time itself, Mm -hmm. like the universe existing is through the son. It's a really beautiful. Uh, descriptor based on the action of who Christ is. So that's number two. He is the creator of the worlds. The third description, he is the radiance of the glory. So this is like the, the brightness that comes off of the Father. Here is Christ, and he radiates that same glory. And uh, the fourth description, very similar to number three, the imprint of of his nature referring to the father so the same brightness of the glory that the father possesses the son radiates that same glory mm. and the nature that the father possesses the son has that exact imprint and uh 
it's not the exact same wording, but that word for imprint there is like when you would stamp a face on a coin, you know, so like on a penny, you've got Abraham Lincoln, you're like, oh, it's Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. He's on that quarter. And it's kind of that idea. Like it's the, the stamping, like the same nature of the father mm -hmm. is the imprint. The son is imprinting that same nature to us. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, not to get caught in the, the language, but it's just saying description, description three and four, Christ and the father share in yeah. their essence. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a strong statement to the deity of yeah. the son of God. So description number five. It's a very Trinitarian oh yeah. passage. Oh yeah. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before, but it is. It's like very Christ insulting. Oh, yeah. Christ very, is God. Yeah. Very like you, almost similar in essence to how Colossians describes him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, he's the, the firstborn of creation, he's he's the same as the father. And then this next description too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and then he upholds description five, all with the word of his power. Mm. And so he's, he's keeping it all. He's created it all. He's the same essence of the father. He keeps all of this through his word. And then uh, description six Making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high or at the majesty in the heights. And so, uh, great descriptions of what Jesus has done, you know, so he's the creator of the world. He keeps the world. And then he sat down after making purification for sins, which this fits so well with what we just talked about with burnt offerings which what Hebrews will go on to describe is that the sacrificial system in Israel was perpetual. The priest never sat down because there's still more sacrifices for sin. Year by year, animal by animal, it was never fully atoning. Hmm. But when this lamb died, yeah. the priest, which by the way, he's also the priest and the sacrifice, but when he made that offering of himself for our sin, right. he is exalted and he sat in the heights next to the majesty on high. He sat down mm -hmm. at the right hand of God because the work was done. Yeah, that's interesting. So the sitting down is often like, especially if one's sitting on a throne in the Old Testament, it's like sitting down is a symbol of power. I've sat in my position and now I have the power to do x y and z but in this text it clearly states it's after making purification yeah it's connecting it to the sacrificial system yeah it's it's directly quote, he's sitting down because he's done there's no more there's sacrifice. no more yeah. yeah we're done and then and then he's he's definitely going to come back to that theme you know in hebrews 8 right nine, right yep. you know that it, no more no more blood of bulls and goats mm -hmm. we don't need that anymore yep and so beautiful description number six there and uh, we could we could you know talk about that much more, but we'll go on to number seven. Um, having become as much greater than the angels, as the name he inherited is better. And this is my own kind of translation here. And so uh, we started off with you know long long time ago God spoke through the prophets, and you know it was lots of prophets, and 
They spoke a lot of things. They made predictions. It was, you know, a huge gaps of time. And uh, here is one man making a very clear message to us. And, uh, you know, obviously we can talk about the gospel with his description in number six there. But then he, he transitions in that last description to what he's a, about to talk to, in the, which is the position of the son being higher than any other position. Namely, how could Christ, if he was born human, how could he still be greater than the angelic beings? And he's going to make quite a, an argument that he is so much greater than the angels, which we'll look at in another episode. But the the argument he's going to make is that the name he has, he's as greater than the angels to the extent that his name is greater than the angels. And what is his name? And it's not Jesus. It's not talking about his actual, like, my name's Charlie, your name's Tim. He's talking about his title. Mm-hmm. And there are some sweet titles, you know, Michael the Archangel. Uh, but what's the title of, of Christ, you know, of Jesus, he's the son of God. Yeah. He is the second member, the son of the Trinitarian God. Right. Like how could an angel ever attain that title? And they couldn't, they can't like he is. So even in his incarnation, as the author will continue to describe, even temporarily subjected lower in physical form, he's still much greater than them because of his exaltation mm. to the right hand of the Father. He is the Son. And uh, really, it is, it's a magnificent opening to this epistle mm-hmm. that gives us a glorious, powerful picture of who Jesus is. And even in that radiance, it reminds us of the sacrifice he made Mm. purifying our sins and uh just how how beautiful this is what's so amazing about the gospel is you have a god that is so far above us transcends humanity yet is willing to give up that power that position to take on human flesh to submit himself even to death on the cross so that he could redeem those who've rebelled against him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that contrast in the glory and the gory just doesn't make sense to us. Like, if you, tr- if you genuinely think about that, this is the only man who should never have died. Right. But yet, through one man, through one man's death, all died. And through one man's death, all live. And uh, it's just a a beautiful, beautiful picture of the glory of Christ in the gospel that he's he's going to begin to express, and we'll uh, we'll just stop there, uh, and then we'll we'll continue through chapter one in future episodes where we go back into the Old Testament, and whoever the author of Hebrews is <laughs> is pulling these quotations with such precision to so perfectly show us this is the messianic king. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as I was studying through this, I had a couple of other passages come to my mind. And we won't look at them, I'll just reference them. 
the first is Genesis 3. So here's the guy. He has, he has such a greater title than all these others. He's the son. And you think all the way back to Genesis 3, and, and here offspring is promised. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Eve, you're going to have a son. And, and even when she has that son, she's like, look, mm-hmm. we've got a son. And I think she's mistakenly thinking this is the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Hebrews 1 is like, no, no, no. This is that guy. Mm-hmm. This is him. And there's obviously many other places that clearly declare that, you know, mm-hmm. not the least of which is his own baptism where the heavens open and God says, this is my son. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the writer of Hebrews pointing all the way back to the beginning of scripture saying, this is that guy. This is that guy. And my, my, my mind went to that. I, I opened up Genesis and read through that. and was like, this is him. Mm-hmm. This is him. And then the other one is uh, Titus 2, 11 through 13. And uh, for the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. And here's the revelation of God to mankind in these last days. And it is, it is his son. And it's his son in holiness. It's his son in glory and beauty and power, but then lifted up on a cross to die for our sins. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the message of hope for a lost and dying world. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things that we might want God to tell us. And, uh, they, they don't even compare like, here's his message. Mm -hmm. You are desperate in need of help and I helped you. Mm -hmm. And this is how I did it. This his name is Jesus. And so, uh, Hebrews tees up for us another great reminder of the beauty of the gospel. And so hopefully that message encourages you to, Remember who Christ is. Remember what he's done for you, what he consistently does uh, in his upholding of the universe he created, uh, that you would glory and cherish in the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, with that, we just say thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week on the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. Is our personal production. Our conversations book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast.